0: Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career, and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who've made a mark in marketing and, of course, have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Rory Sutherland is vice chairman of Ogilvy, where he has been pretty much for the entirety of his 30-odd years in advertising. He's also a Radio 4 regular and a TED Talk star. The Don Draper of the UK advertising scene, as some describe him, is also one of the world's most acclaimed behavioural economists, on which he consults for some of the world's biggest brands. He's also now an author with his book, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense, which is soon to be released. Welcome, Rory. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I mentioned in my intro that you're often described as the Don Draper of UK advertising. Now, Don Draper clearly was a creative genius, but some would argue a questionable morals, so I just wondered what you felt about being called Don Draper of UK advertising.
1: Um, It's a mixed (laughs) uh, blessing, I have to say, in that my wife and I used to watch Mad Men together, and my wife is an Anglican clergywoman. And I would always tease her by pretending not to realise that Don was considered an unsympathetic character anyway. I'd treat him as if he were the absolutely unqualified hero of the series just to disturb my wife. Um, Actually, it's uh, a hopeless description physically. Uh, Anybody uh, who met me, having heard that description, would be massively disappointed. On the other hand, there's a little bit of truth to it in that one of the things I would like to do within advertising and marketing is to bring back the focus on psychology and human behavior that was very, very strong in the 50s and early 60s. In fact, in the early episodes of Mad Men, you will see such a person as an agency psychologist. Typically, they wore a bow tie. They might have had a possibly even genuine Viennese accent. But agencies spent quite a lot of time focusing on what you might call behavioral science, the science of perception, uh, the science of persuasion, but also understanding what you might call unconscious human motivation back in the 50s and 60s. And weirdly, they abandoned it for not very good reasons. Why was that then? Uh, They got scared. If you look at that period, particularly after the Korean War, um, there was quite a lot of fear about Um, communist brainwashing, particularly of returned prisoners from Korea. Uh, You look at films like The Manchurian Candidate, which come out, but also books like The Hidden Persuaders. And it's worth remembering that the ad industry didn't make any money from doing that very useful psychological stuff. It was all charged below the line. They were making a fortune towards the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, uh, being paid on commission for buying television. So the ad industry made a kind of Collective cowardly decision to pretend that um, persuasion simply took place using rational, conscious means uh, in the bright light of day, as one proponent put it. And they simply argued that it was a kind of oratory and that it was entirely about persuasion and that nothing was going on uh, subliminally. And the great problem with that, of course, it was an incredibly convenient pretense if you wanted to continue making money. Uh, making TV commercials uh, without coming in under much scrutiny. It was also, I'd argue, cowardly and completely dishonest. Um, in fact, you can't help communicating sublim- subliminally or,
0: or unconsciously in anything you do. It seems to me that it's still relatively, this day, to this day, on news, behavioural economics and psychology and advertising. Uh, or... Yes.
1: I mean, I, I tried my best while I was president of the IPA. I tried my best to make it into a... Uh, central plank of my agenda, which was getting Britain's ad agencies to understand it better. And I think it has several, actually at least three very important roles to play. One, it can help you look in more places and therefore it can spawn more oblique, more interesting creative ideas. Two, it can help you explain and defend those ideas to clients Nearly all really interesting advertising ideas have an element about them which is, if you like, not conventionally logical. There's some element of counterintuitive or apparently irrelevant behavior involved in any great ad campaign. I mean, what is the connection between insurance and cats, for example? And so it can help agencies justify their more interesting work and therefore sell it more easily. And I genuinely believe that work will be more effective. And then the third thing it can do, I think, more widely is I think it can raise the status of marketing within the wider organisation by giving it scientific foundations. At the moment, marketing is a bit like Freudian psychology, which is it's based on case studies, and everybody draws inspiration from each other. But you couldn't really describe it as following the Baconian scientific method of uh, falsifiability or anything like that. It's a slightly hokum uh, discipline. And as a result, unfairly, because deep down it's very, very important, it deals with the difference between what is objective reality, what people perceive, how they then feel and how they act, which is central to any, any problem where human behaviour is um, an important component of the outcome... And yet, at the same time, because it hasn't had a pet science in the way that, for example, finance has economics, I think marketing has slunk further and further down the value chain within large organisations. Not all of them. You know, if you're Unilever, if you're P&G, marketing spend is so significant that um, those companies still have a marketing culture. The chief executive will have spent a reasonable stint Uh, probably in a marketing role, certainly thinking about it a lot. But if you look at the new growing breed of advertisers, such as tech companies, um, finance companies, uh, if you take anything from an insurance comparison website to selling home broadband to mobile phone networks, if you're a marketer within what is a very, very strongly left-brain engineering or finance culture, uh, it can be a very, very lonely existence indeed. And I think what we're doing, and this is a really important thing, I mentioned those three valuable things that behavioural science can do. I think it can also prevent us from making a worse mistake, which is with digitisation, measurement, quantifiability, uh, the whole sort of gamut of online advertising, there is a perfectly healthy quest to turn advertising into something highly scientific. And the aspiration of that is noble and right and good. There's a terrifying facet to it, though, which is people are trying to make it the wrong kind of science. In other words, it's always going to be a complexity science. It's always going to be like meteorology. And people are taking the data that they suddenly have and they're trying to turn it into physics. Now, the reason there's a very important distinction to that is in physics, if you like, in a Newtonian kind of framework... um, Generally, you know, a very, very simple mathematical formula can describe the behaviour of physical objects with a high degree of certainty and a very strong level of predictability. I don't think that's attainable, nor is it desirable to try to attain it in human behaviour, because there's too much context dependency, there's too much complexity, there's too much recursion, essentially, that we don't just do what is in our own interest, we're heavily affected by what other people do, and so forth. And therefore, what people are trying to do is they're trying to impose the wrong kind of scientific rules in their attempt to make marketing and advertising scientific. Now, very simple distinction. In physics, you're basically looking for a single right answer because in such a world, there is one. You know, like those high school maths questions where it said two buses leave a bus station at noon, one travels due east at a constant speed of 40 kilometres per hour, one travels... due north at a constant speed of 30, there was a single answer to how far apart they'd be in two hours' time. Okay. Now, in a market, there isn't a single right answer. What we're looking for is not a single right answer to a clearly defined question. We're actually asking for a number of right answers to a question which is forever shifting. And therefore, that quest for certainty, that quest to create a kind of tube map around marketing activity
0: is is a false god and this misappropriation of of rigour yeah is it wh- where does this come from is it the availability of the plethora of data that is therefore it's going to be used
1: i think it all comes from what it means to be businesslike and how you want to look businesslike, in particular What you want to do as far as possible in any corporate or governmental setting is you want to have a formula or model that directs your decision to essentially remove any subjectivity or accusations of subjectivity from your recommendation. And I think that's a mistake. I mean, I think fundamentally uh, where if you're genuinely rigorous, this is what you should do in fact, instead of saying we have developed a single model and it tells us to do this, you should say we think we need to test these five or six different things and see, see what happens before we can make a more informed decision. And it's the urge for people to essentially say the answer is X. It's worth remembering, OK, it's much, much easier to get fired for being irrational than it is for being unimaginative. There's a very, very strong... Uh, mood in business, which is that in order to improve a business, you try and make it more efficient. And I'd say that's true um, for large parts of business. If you're in logistics, for example, you do want to, you know, a a cost reduction is almost certainly a good thing. if, If at that lower cost, you can still achieve what it is you've 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 actually set out to achieve in the first place. In dealing with humans, of course, what your objective is, is highly variable. How they perceive what you say is highly variable. There's much, much more going on. And I think it's a complete mistake to try and make marketing more efficient. Because in marketing, unlike logistics, efficiency and effectiveness may be not only not very well correlated, they may be actually diametrically opposed or unconnected. And the reason for that is that in many ways, for example, it is the bonkers illogical thing that delivers meaning because we notice things that don't make completely conventional sense. And so... If you look at what you might call efficiency in achieving a physical end, that can be defined by, say, the laws of physics, or it can be reasonably done mathematically. Emotional efficiency is a very weird thing, because if you want to produce an emotion and a behavior at the lowest cost possible, actually, it will probably involve doing something extremely oblique, counterintuitive or unusual. And the example I give of supreme emotional efficiency, when they reopened St Pancras Station, I don't know who did this, I've long admired them. You probably remember this. St Pancras, after having been semi-derelict for quite a time, was finally reopened as the new Eurostar terminal and as a new station with great fanfare. Every single news item on the local news, national news, etc., mentioned that it had the longest champagne bar in Europe. Do you remember this? Now, it's... This is something which I call benign bullshit, Okay, In that, first of all, there is no particular connection between champagne bars and length. Nobody ever says, I went to a champagne bar last night. Did you really? How long was it? Or I didn't like the champagne bar very much. It wasn't nearly long enough. And yet this gratuitous superlative did, which was... Utterly pointless and weird. You know, imagine how pissed off you'd be if you are a rail engineer or you are an architect and you'd done all that work and all everybody talked about was the relatively trivial fact that the champagne bar was fairly long. You know, it would rightly piss you off, just as I imagine the people who design the gearboxes in cars get pissed off when the advertising just talks about the cup holder or something. And yet it was emotionally efficient because... The very fact that it was kind of nonsense gave it a resonance. But secondly, it said very eloquently in about six words that this station was not merely a transport interchange. It was a destination in and of itself. And so the point I'm making is that efficiency and effectiveness... Uh, and what, what, um, If you want to be efficient in communicating to people, you've got to leave logic on the back shelf to some degree. Because actually, um, what we notice, what we act upon, how we actually draw inferences from stories, from information, from facts, from presentation, is unbelievably high variance.
0: Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce, helping you to connect to your customers in a whole new way. As I said in my intro, you've been in advertising well, since the late 80s, what's changed in that time? If you were to highlight one or two things, is it what you talked about earlier, the triumph of efficiency over effectiveness or or are there other things that you would... Um,
1: One thing hasn't changed, which is the big mistake. Let me tell you two things where I think that the standard marketing approach is often wrong. Advertising is the most expensive thing and therefore not unreasonably gets the most attention. However, I've always argued that actually, in selling anything, you should actually start at the end and work backwards. So, one of the things I'd always say is the first thing to optimize, if you have any kind of business, is the experience. Because if the experience is no good, in fact, good advertising will kill your product even faster. So if you haven't got the experience right, there's no point in doing anything else because people will only buy from you once and every additional customer you create is creating a kind of um, negative word of mouth at at worst uh, or just a failure to repeat the purchase at best. Then you should optimise the transaction, what's sometimes called shelf-back planning, because If you haven't actually optimised the choice architecture, where you appear in the shelf, uh, what you're positioned against, where you're positioned, if you haven't got that completely right, then your advertising is going to be working subpar. And only then, when you've got the end of the experience right, you know, does it really pay to advertise. And I've been influenced by this by a thing called the theory of constraints, which is something written by Eli Goldratt and also by a friend of mine called Clark Ching, who's a great expert on the theory of constraints, but has also written books on bottleneck theory, that the place to improve any system is at the narrowest point. And I'd also gloss on that and say the place to improve any system is end first. There's no point in widening a road if there's a set of traffic lights that's always on red 200 yards further on. And so um, I always think that the emphasis paid to different components of advertising is completely out of whack and that's driven by the fact that the advertising is expensive and also therefore uh, is lucrative in many ways that's my first part the second thing that did happen around about the early 90s um is that um we ceased to be paid on commission by almost anybody and yet the whole agency business more or less continued to behave as though we were Now, okay, there was a downside to not having commission because you never suddenly got a large lump sum for not doing very much, for rerunning last year's advertising. There were lots of upsides to commission. Um, It ensured that I think that creative people who could solve problems were commensurately well paid. Uh, I think um, payment by the hour has shifted the balance of rewarding managerial skills versus creative skills because generally if you want people who can make money and a pay-by-the-hour... Environment, what you want is people who are very, very good with a spreadsheet and at, you know, essentially, uh, you know, keeping, bringing jobs in under, you know, uh, under budget, whereas brilliant salesmanship or creative skills get commensurately undervalued uh, in that environment. But the weirdest thing that happened was that you would have thought that ad agencies in the 90s would have said, well, the bad news is we're now paid by the hour, which means we can't suddenly enjoy windfalls for you know, running the same campaign for five years. But the good news is we can now solve problems for anybody, not just people with a media budget. Now for everybody with a problem and a media budget, there are a thousand people with a problem where human insight and creativity could provide a solution, but who don't have a media budget and would never even consider walking through the doors of an ad agency. In fact, you know, when you say ad agency on the front of a building, I always say it's a little like having a general hospital, but it has a sign up front that just says cosmetic surgery. And I think the number of problems that... This is what I'm trying to do with a behavioural science practice is very deliberately get money from budgets that aren't even marketing budgets. And, you know, and solve those kind of problems where human behaviour and human psychology is integral to the solution, but where bought media need play no particular part uh, in
0: reaching that solution. Brings me nicely onto a question I was going to ask you, and it's uh, referenced in your book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. You do talk about how advertising doesn't have to look like advertising, and I took that as advice for those perhaps who didn't have a large media budget, or indeed any uh, media budget... <coughs> If you could explain to me the chairs on the pavement example that you make reference to. Yes, it's a very simple
1: example, which is humans are making inferences all the time uh, from the information they see. It's probably what's behind Jeremy Bullmore's phrase, people build brands the way birds build nests, from the scraps and straws they find lying around. And the point about the chairs on the pavement was very interesting, which was simply that... I had this cafe near my home, and it was on a busy road, and a reasonably fast road. Uh, there wasn't anywhere obviously easy to park. And one of the things I noticed is the cafe kept failing until they did something quite interesting, which was they bought one of those sort of um, windbreak things with the name of the cafe on. They erected it outside the cafe, and they put tables and chairs outside. Now, previous cafes had had seating outside, but it had been those very, very hell. Um, heavy table benches. The kind of thing you couldn't take indoors and the kind of thing that wasn't going to blow away and wasn't going to be stolen. You know, the kind of things you get in pub beer gardens where it's essentially two long s- seats and a trestle table in the middle. Now, it suddenly occurred to me that anybody, if you know anything about English tea rooms, you'll know they have the most bizarre opening hours of any branch of capitalism and that quite routinely they'll close at 3.30. And it suddenly occurred to me that the reason the cafe had had prospered was that by putting the windbreak and the lightweight aluminium chairs outside, it was very, very clear to anyone driving past that the cafe was open. Absolutely no ambiguity, because if the cafe hadn't been open, they would have taken the chairs inside to prevent them being stolen or to prevent them blowing around, and they would have disassembled the windbreak. And so the existence of temporary furniture is a huge great ad that says, not only is there a cafe here, but it's clearly open. Now, a really great sign painted on the wall saying, cafe says the former, but doesn't say the latter. And it struck me that we do these things actually unconsciously, that we don't go... Um, OK, the logic of it would be, uh, conventionally, well, since anybody who'd closed their cafe wouldn't leave highly thievable furniture around outside, I can infer that the cafe is open. But it's actually a brilliant ad because I think the human brain does that without actually going through that process of logic. I don't know if, you, I don't know if you've ever been to Milan, but it's deeply confusing if you're a Brit. Because the thing about Northern Italy is it's basically German. OK, I mean, it's closer to Switzerland or Germany in many cultural ways uh, than it is to southern Italy. And so you wander around Milan thinking, I'm in Italy, therefore I'm looking for a cafe. Um, and it's strange because I'm looking down all these streets and I can't see any furniture on the pavement. So there can't be any cafes. And it's only after two days that you realise that in Milan, because they're kind of krauts, not not Italians, um. Actually, the restaurants and cafes are behind doors. They don't put furniture out on the street. They just have a door and you go in. There might be something out the back, but not necessarily. And it's very strange because you realise that unconsciously you've been assuming there are no cafes because of your assumption that in Italy, a cafe means people lobbing chairs and furniture all over the place. And I spent about a day and a half in Milan going, strange paucity of places to eat, this is in the days before TripAdvisor, before realising that just architecturally, you know, they're different. And you realise that the human brain is forever drawing inferences from bits of information which an economist would say was entirely irrelevant. And so in the same way, for instance, uh, with a call centre script at Ogilvy Change, People found it very difficult to choose between three different subscription products over the telephone until we said most people choose B. Now, to an economist again, um, to a committed rationalist, what most people do should be irrelevant to the decision. In fact, humans are looking for cues like that all over the place. They're not just looking at the question of... Um, I mean, I notice it a lot, um, I, the number of things we do tacitly... I suddenly realised that I'd learnt whether I had to run for the train or not, depending on how many people were standing on the platform in the morning. And that simply meant that if there were a lot of people standing on the platform, there was a train shortly coming in because these people had timed their arrival to catch it. If there were only seven people on the platform, I might as well get myself a coffee because there wasn't going to be a train for about 12 minutes. But what's interesting is we actually know these things before we know we know them. And the amount of human knowledge deployed in decision making that's tacit, that doesn't necessarily um, lend itself to mathematical expression or logical expression, but which nonetheless influences the way we behave, uh, strikes me as fascinating. And that's what I mean by saying that advertising is very, very powerful. You won't find me disparaging advertising. But bought, paid for media... um, is only one of many ways you can influence behavior, maybe the most powerful, certainly if you're operating at scale, but um, it's one of only many ways you can actually influence decision-making. And you can similarly use design, for example, very, very economically, or a phrase like, for instance, um, the longest champagne bar in Europe, to completely change the way people think about something and the way people act. And... It's completely silly of ad agencies focusing all their time on the bought media part of the business because we haven't been paid on commission for 25 years and it entirely limits the scope of our operation and means we're all there competing for the same marketing and media budgets when what we should be doing is creating new budgets from elsewhere, explaining, for example, how you solve the pensions crisis using rudimentary psychology.
0: The battle between logic and (coughs) magic, I would say, is probably the central tenet of your book. You open with an example, or the example of Red Bull, which was damned for its taste during testing, but went on to become, well, usually successful, as everybody listening will know. That's an example, I think, you argue, where magic can triumph over logic. You follow up with the line, when you demand logic, you pay a hidden price, you destroy magic. Yeah, explain that for me, will you?
1: The first thing to know is that humans didn't evolve a sense of logic to make de- decisions. Um, this is a theory of Dan Sperber and Hugo-, Hugo Mercier, two French anthropologists and evolutionary psychologists. And their point is that, if you think about it, all animals function perfectly well on the planet without actually needing a sense of reason. You don't get dogs sort of sitting around going, I bark, therefore I am, or any of that stuff. And... Reason was a comparatively late addition to the human brain and was designed to win and evaluate arguments and to make a case for something, not to actually influence what you do. And the thing we've got to realise is that in any institutional setting, the first requirement of getting other people to buy into your idea is that it meets those constraints of logic. The problem is, is that there's a huge creative opportunity cost if you require that every solution makes complete sense. Denim, by the way, makes no sense whatsoever. Imagine, you know, imagine making the business case for denim. I don't own any denim because I can't understand it, OK? I, don't, I genuinely don't understand why a, you know, a fading kind of uh, rough fabric that's not particularly comfortable, largely associated with indigent gold mining communities in San Francisco in the mid-19th century, why it became the default fabric for human dress is a complete mystery to me. If you'd asked people in, say, 1980, sorry, 1880, and you'd said, in the 21st century, silks and materials that feel like silk will be so cheap, you know, you can make anything out of them. What do you think people will be wearing in 2019? They'd say, they'll be wearing the finest silken fabrics. I mean, I'm slightly with, um, you know, Indian bridegroom dress on that. I think that's how people should dress, given what we can afford. But no, people are are wearing jeans, apparently. And so loads and loads of things. Wikipedia, imagine, you know, the case for that. You know, your last moment would have to be, and the best thing of all is people are going to write it for us for free. OK? I mean, all of the most interesting ideas, Red Bull, Dyson, etc., have an element of total illogicality. Now, you can, there's a great G.K. Chesterton quote here, and I think J.K. Chesterton was a great conservative thinker and also a great complex systems thinker. Um, and he said, you can only discover the truth with logic if you have first discovered it without without it. And I think with Red Bull, I can post-rationalise why Red Bull works, but I, can't, I, I don't think I could have come up with the explanation in advance. Now, what's interesting here, okay, I think the reason Red Bull works is because it claims to have medicinal or psychoactive powers. If you claim to have psychoactive, medicinal, or or some sort of psychotropic potency, the product has to taste weird. You know, painkillers have to taste a bit horrible. Um, uh, you know, uh, cough medicine has to taste a bit yucky. OK? Because if it doesn't taste really, really weird, we don't believe in it. And there's an instinctive thing there where the human is going, my... Belief in the potency of this product is actually inversely correlated with how delicious it tastes. Uh, I know, I then, when I made this point, I discovered that Sonatogen always added a slightly unpleasant taste uh, to what was a tonic wine, because they realised that if it was simply delicious, no one could make the claim that it was medicinal. Um, I discovered that Diet Coke has to be made deliberately slightly more bitter than ordinary Coke, so people believe it's a diet drink which is why it's slightly less sweet uh, than conventional Coke. Whereas, of course, Coke Zero is a different matter. That's more, more of a substitute. And I discovered that actually all these things in terms of psychophysics, taste and perception, are much. they don't map simply one to the other. So depending on the context of what a drink is, if it's actually medicinal, you want it to be expensive, you want it to taste weird, and you want it to come in a tiny can because the tiny can actually spells out potency. Because what our unconscious infers from that can is, geez, this stuff must be pretty powerful because if they put it in a full 330 milliliter can, you know, someone would go postal. You know, we'd have Columbine, right? So it actually says, okay, this is really, really potent because they have to make a deliberately small can in which to serve it. And then they had probably the best thing that can ever happen to a product, particularly for teenage males, is the rumours started that it was going to be banned. And in fact, believe it or not, my local shop actually demanded I was—I was using the self-checkout, and my local shop demanded proof that I was sixteen in order to buy Red Bull. Um, and actually, if you think about it, if you want fifteen-year-olds to drink Red Bull, oh, thank you, legislators. That is such a gift, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Anything. Uh, remember when records were banned? When people did such a thing. They would shoot up the charts. Absolutely shoot up the charts.
1: I know it's, uh, it's anti-fragility, is Nassim Taleb's explanation, that certain things actually attempt to actually suppress them have the op- equal and opposite effect.
0: You use the example of Brexit and the 2016 US presidential election as illustrations of logic's failings. If you could just explain what you meant yeah. by that. Yeah,
1: OK. So what they had was data on how to fight, say... Uh, they had probably not bad data. If, uh, for example, uh, a conventional candidate had stood for the Republicans, so if you'd been up against um, who was the previous year's uh, contender before Trump, it was actually it was McCain, and then before McCain, Mitt Romney. Was it was Mitt Romney. Okay, mm. now my hunch would be that the the strategy they had. And all the data they had on how to combat the Republicans probably would have worked pretty well against Mitt Romney had he decided to stand again. Against Trump, Trump, what you got to remember? This is why I kind of actually secretly quite this is another bit of Draperism. I kind of slightly admire him because careful. What no 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 no. But everybody says he's stupid. He may or may not be stupid. He's unbelievably cunning. And he'd effectively changed he realized that the only way he was going to win is to by changing the rules of campaigning now Hillary, two days before the election, okay um Bill, who is an instinctive kind of cunning bastard of the Donald mold to an extent, said, "I think you need to go and reconnect with essentially white working class voters in the Midwest, and you should go to Wisconsin uh in the end, she went to Arizona, right now. That was what Robbie Mook's data told her to do. Now, I don't think she was going to win Arizona anyway, okay, to be honest, but never mind that. Um, the idea, anybody who's been to Wisconsin would listen to Bill, and, and I think the view was essentially that um, uh, Mook would say, my data disagree with your anecdotes. But sometimes the anecdotes are right because the anecdotes are telling you what's new. Now, what what was a very significant thing there was that, if you think about it, Trump was filling stadia wherever he went. If you go to one of those events, he, he help, it, it helped that he had his own private jet because he adopted the Led Zeppelin approach to touring, which is you base yourself at home in New York and you fly to three different places every day or, and then return home. Zeppelin did that. They went, they went and performed somewhere, flew back to New York rather than spending ages on the road. You're much, much less tired. And so borrowing from the mighty Zepp, Trump with his own plane, did the same thing. And he filled places everywhere he went. Now, Hillary, they were basically having to kind of muster people in to make sure there weren't empty seats immediately behind her. Now, that kind of thing is essentially, it's not... Sometimes it's about navigating the ship, which is what data's about. Sometimes it's about changing the weather. And what Trump did with his style of of, of campaigning was he essentially changed the weather. And he was brilliantly clever because he realised that people who work in the um, in the media have a kind of uh, what you might call racism trigger that's a complete hair trigger compared to normal members of the American public, whatever you think is right or wrong. So all he had to do was sail slightly close to the wind in talking about, say, uh, Latin American immigration. And he knew he'd get free publicity... From the American media, going completely bonkers at what he'd said, and getting lots and lots of people to express outrage, all the while knowing that that was v- winning him more votes than it was losing.
0: If you could just pinpoint one thing that you have worked on that you would highlight as a particular achievement, and and I'll also ask the follow up question if there's anything. Actually, let me ask it the other way around. I'll you know if there was, if there was something that you feel that you could have done a lot better
1: or, you know, that you failed on? Uh, one of my weird things I'm proud of is um, I'm proud of some early direct marketing work I did for American Express. I cut my teeth on American Express. Drayton Bird said it was the best place to learn, and it was because you had everything. A fantastic brand, very good direct marketing, very interesting product, very good advertising. And there, I, I'm grateful for, you know, some of the early work I did on that, which was very interesting because it was early Um, behavioural science work, in that you wrote to people who didn't want to accept American Express, not contradicting them, but replaying their objections. And it was a very good lesson on persuasion, which is if you want to persuade someone, meet someone halfway, which is why, by the way, so many of the extreme left campaigns, which serve essentially, or the Remain campaign, which spend a lot of their time effectively insulting anybody who disagrees with them, have been massively counterproductive and I think a large amount of environmentalism is incredibly counterproductive. I think that the uh, a really good marketers... <laughs> i be honest with you, OK. I already want solar panels at home. I want an electric car already. Make it easy for me, right? Make me part of the solution. Don't treat me as if I'm the problem, OK? So that's, a, that's the first point. I learned a huge amount there. I'm also proud, weirdly, of the fact that I discovered something that was an assumption about pizza delivery, uh, that everybody wants their pizza as soon as possible. And I discovered, as, I, as I'd surmised, that this was actually a product of the choice architecture of ordering a pizza, not actually representative of human um, uh, preference, So that's actually very valuable because it means you can actually, if you can get people to wait a bit longer by changing expectation, you can put three deliveries on one bike before it returns to base rather than having to do it as a just-in-time thing. But I'm also really proud of the work I've done, which hasn't yet borne fruition, but which is just pointing out that certain things we do, which seem totally logical if you're an economist, totally logical if you're a kind of conventional thinker, are in behavioural terms disastrous. And I'll give you two very quick examples. Pensions are utterly, utterly stupid. Okay. Now, the incentive for you to get a pension at the age of, let's say, 28, is we will add into your pension contributions a complete tax rebate on every amount you've paid in. Okay. So, in other words, we're paying an incentive which I don't get to see when I'm 25, for another 40 years. Can you think of any piece of marketing you've ever seen in the entire history of the world that says act now and we'll do something great for you in the year 2045? Okay. Now I've spoken to people that costs 40 billion a year, giving people a tax rebate uh, on uh, their pension. I've actually spoken to people in marketing and said, which do you think would be more effective in terms of incentivizing young people to get a pension? One of which is sign up for a pension and we will repay your tax, uh, all tax on your contributions into your pension. Or two, free iPad. Uh, That wouldn't cost 40 billion. I worked out it would cost about, I think, half a billion a year, so an 80th of the cost. Nearly every marketer says in order to incentivize someone to get their free pension, the iPad would work better. And then the second thing would be electric cars. There's a 3000 or £4,000 subsidy when you buy an electric car, which the government pays you off the purchase price. OK? You can also get a subsidy of about two to £300 for installing a 7-kilowatt charging point at home. Now, I live in a country house converted into apartments. All of us would like to install electric charging points and pick up the subsidy. You can't get that until you prove you already own an electric car. Now, think about it, Okay, from a marketer's point of view. Actually, you're doing this completely inefficiently and stupidly, because if you can get people to install electric charging points for electric cars at home, they're almost certainly going to make their next car purchase an electric car. Because if I'd spent £200 of my own money putting an electric charging post next to my house, I'd feel a bit of a prat going out and buying a diesel, wouldn't I? So... Again, this is a case where, and, and, and Shlomo Bonazzi, my friend Shlomo Benazzi and Richard Thaler proved this with the Save More Tomorrow pension. This is a case where things are designed by economists in a way that makes sense only to a species of creature that has never actually existed, only to a kind of completely conventionally logical um, optimising, uh, uh, utility optimising entity, which has never existed on the planet. And as a result, it's completely billions and billions of pounds are being spent in a way that's
0: absolutely ineffectual. Rory Sutherland, thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by BioCreative, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer, Tim O'Donoghue. If you want to listen to previous episodes, then you can do so by subscribing via iTunes and SoundCloud. Well, you'll hear interviews with the likes of Professor Byron Sharp, Unilever CMO Keith Weed, and Yadjio CMO Sil Salah. Until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.